This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 69, April 14, 1984. Today we have again the pleasure of a visit from David Rhodes. And here with us to chat with him are John Stafford and Otto Scott. David Rhodes is with us for a day of planning. We'll let you know subsequently about some very interesting and important developments. Uh, we are embarking on a common project which I think will be a very great importance in the Reconstruction Movement. Well, David, it's a pleasure to have you with us again. And we've had very uh, fine reactions to your last visit and your last interview with us. Uh, John, do you want to start with a question for uh, David as we discuss the economic outlook? Sure, Rush. Uh, David, uh, I've been reading your latest letter, and uh, you have a number of comments to make about the investment scene. Why don't we start off with that and contrast it with what you were thinking in our last visit, and then we'll go on to some other topics. Yes. Uh, on the last visit, of course, I thought uh, 1,200 would be about the bottom for the Dow, and uh, that turned out to be wrong almost immediately. I did have one caveat in that, though, and that was that uh, if the international banking thing held together, 1,200 would be the bottom. And, of course, we know now that the situation with Argentina began coming undone about that time, and it reached its peak and its crescendo then at the end of March when it was finally bailed out by the U.S. government. Um, that accounts for a large portion of the hot money flow out of the country, some of that flow was, of course, because uh, some foreign rates had raised. But a large portion of it, I think, is a readjustment of investment positions by large investors to uh, what looked like a potential banking crisis. This crisis, of course, will be hanging over our heads until it finally breaks down and lets go. And uh, I figure that we may have four more years before that happens. Some people think we've got less than four months, and I don't know of any way to tell who's right. Um, I see the banking situation being relieved now for a few months. It will be coming back at the end of June when Argentina comes up um, with their plan for who which debts they'll recognize and how they're going to pay them off. She'll be followed quickly by a number of other South American and Central American countries and, of course, the whole Eastern Bloc and the whole Third World uh, debt situation is watching what happens in Argentina. So June could be another crisis month. Uh, in the interim, though, I think we're due for a good rally in the stock market. What happens then in June, um, we'll have to wait and see. The interesting thing that happened in this Argentine crisis, which is different from 1982 and the Mexican crisis, is that once the, the Fed began pumping up the money supply in 82, it kept it up through the end of the year. This time it kept it up just for two weeks, and then it pinched off again. Uh, this is uh, accounts for the big, huge spike in the monetary base that we saw in February. Um, that um, 
they're back now to a restrictive um, money growth. It's restrictive in, in uh, view of the way the economy would like to move. And so what I see happening now is a pinch-off in the economy coming. We're seeing the early signs of that already. This, I think, will tend to relieve the um, pressure on the money supply. And I think uh, interest rates then, because of that, and also because of a um, seasonal inflow of tax monies to the Fed, will tend to pump up this uh, um rally that's going on now and could carry it uh, into the summer. But uh, again, this situation with the international banking problem is going to be over our heads for years and it's going to burp every so often and it's going to cause a number of my projections to go into the tank just as it did in January. But as long as the thing holds together, why I'm still very uh, optimistic about the situation in bonds and stocks. What's uh, fascinating from a number of standpoints is, is uh, this scenario. Uh, one thing I think might be helpful for the listeners is to uh, zero in a little bit and uh, for a brief uh, period uh, and get your comments on this question of uh, the Fed pursuing a tight money policy versus a loose money policy. There are those who say that uh, it's the one, some that say the other. I think you tend to agree or you tend to also believe what I believe, and that is that you have to measure looseness or tightness based on the needs of the economy rather than just charts. And what what, uh, I know what I've been saying to my people is that uh, it's a loose policy if it matches the debt needs of the economy and the legitimate uh, economic demand needs of the economy and then goes beyond that rather than just being an arithmetic type of approach to measuring what that policy is. That's, uh, yes, I agree with that. Um, I think the term I prefer instead of loose or tight would be accommodative or non-accommodative. Mm-hmm. And the way to tell when you have non-accommodation is that interest rates go up. They can go up. Even though the monetary base is expanding at a record rate, interest rates can still go up because the demand is outstripping the um, the supply. That's non-accommodation. They can go down even though the um, uh, monetary base is shrinking because borrowing demand can shrink faster than the monetary base, and uh, so there's relief in the market, and that's accommodative. We saw that kind of accommodation in 8081, uh, we see non-accommodation now, um, which actually started last June. And uh, the effect of non-accommodation is to pinch off the expansion. And uh, I think we're on the verge of, of some very clear signs that that's happening. Well, if that's true, uh, let's tie that into a uh, fairly extensive article that you had in a recent letter on real estate, which we didn't discuss the last time. Could you give us our views on... Uh, real estate generally and the uh, possible effect of this uh, uh, accommodative or non-accommodative policy of the Federal Reserve? Well, the thing I remember about real estate is that uh, it's funded largely with debt, and when the price of debt gets too high, then a number of borrowers are disqualified. And even if they want to buy and they're willing to pay the price, they aren't allowed in by the, by the lender. And we're in a period of raising interest rates now, so that's bound to have an effect on real estate. Um, the 
analog or the model I like to use for this period, though, is the period of the 20s. The uh, 1920s were roaring. Uh, it's also called the stable leg of the Kondrachev wave, and I believe we're in a similar period now. The 1920s were kicked off by the end of inflation in 1920, and uh, we had lower uh, dropping interest rates and a rising money supply without inflation then for um, almost, um, well, until the blow-off in the stock market in 1929. Two other things happened. With the collapse of the commodity market, all the farmers went in the tank, and the farmers never had a roaring 20s. They were in uh, bankruptcy and in trouble uh, from 1921 on until um, World War II. The other thing that happened was the collapse of the real estate market, which started, I believe, around 1925 or 1926 with the uh, explosion of the bubble in uh, Florida. Um, so I expect these two things to happen now. The third thing, of course, is the fact that, that uh, the capital goods market does not recover. Uh, you can have like a bear market rally, but you never have a real recovery of the capital goods market. And um, we're seeing a um, consumer recovery, but not a capital goods recovery. And I think some of these predictions are a little off base in that regard. But now, for the real estate uh, aspect of it, um, we've had a collapse in real estate values all over the country. Um, except in a few hot spots. And one hot spot I watch it was San Diego. Uh, it's got a good, broadly-based economy and uh, was not really hit all that hard by this last downturn. Uh, it also was one of the real boiling pots for speculation back in 79 and 80. The graph I keep on that uh, has a number of... Um, moving averages, and all these averages, moving averages, peaked out in 80 and 81 and flattened out, and just recently then, toward the end of 83, they began to turn down, and it tells me then that speculation is off in San Diego and that um, we're looking now toward a potential for a bust. If you buy on speculation, then you're, you're in a... Um, you're in a... Um, Precarious position, you're over leveraged on debt, and if the prices don't go up, if the, if the material doesn't move, then you've got to unload it. And when the great unloading comes, the price will go down. One of the reasons, uh, Dave, that I thought that the stock market would take off in the 80s was because of uh, the fact that during the 20s, if you looked at bank clearings in Miami, they went from over a billion to under a hundred million in the five-year period beginning about 1925 and much of that money flowed out of the speculative land boom in Florida into the New York Stock Exchange and powered that uh, huge surge in the market there. Otto, would you like to comment? Or well, the real estate thing really interests me because so many millions of Americans uh, regard that as the central point of their lives, their home, their residences, and so forth. And you said something before we started here, comparing the real estate progression to the uh, famous tulip speculation and so forth. Uh, I think you said that you felt the values had gone up uh, by a factor of five. Oh, yeah, um... 
We're just coming out of um, the worst inflation in 150 years. And um, this is a general observation, not just on real estate, but the um, a period of inflation is a period of insanity. And people lose their sense of values. Um, Thomas Mann, I believe it was, wrote about uh, the fact that uh, Germany could embrace a man like Hitler only because it had gone through the crucible of the inflation in the 20s, where it lost all sense of value. Um, that's what happens when inflation goes too far. Uh, perhaps ours hasn't gone too far, but uh, by certain standards of measurement of value, um, the world at this point seems to be overpriced by about a factor of five. Now, we've seen some pretty significant adjustments in the commodities, we certainly saw an adjustment in the bond market, but we haven't seen a real adjustment, uh, an adequate adjustment yet, in the price of real estate. So I think that when all these adjustments do take place and we come back to reality, we'll see probably 80% of the values lopped off, and this will be as true of real estate as it is of anything else. Well, 80% is going to be an awful shock to an awful lot of people. We started out with houses selling at $2,500, $3,500. $10,000 house, I remember, was quite elegant. And now, in California at least, a $100,000 house is apt to be a hovel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This is part of the irrationality that comes with the inflation. Um, I hope that we have a return to reality. Uh, it's sobering and it's very difficult for people who have based their plans on what they think or what you know, turns out to be an illusory value but the alternative to that is con continuing the illusion until everything comes apart including our institutions well what uh, effect what social and political effect do you suppose a collapse of real estate values would have I mean I recall that although I was pretty young when the Florida collapse occurred, that I believe I've been reading about it ever since. Uh, some people never forgot it, never forgave the state of Florida for being the place where it occurred. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, dramatic return to reality can cause all kinds of dislocations. There would be tremendous economic dislocations. Uh, no question about that. And the people who see 80 or 90 percent of their wealth disappear overnight, they're going to be very angry. Um, one thing that isn't talked about very much is the fact that a lot of the wealthy people are older, and they have a lot of their wealth in uh, paper, and the big adjustment will come in paper. I think that the people who own their real estate outright will be able to maintain that ownership. But if they have their money in a T-bill or something like that and the thing is repudiated or whatever device is used to bring us to destroy that illusion, they're going to lose everything they've got in it. Now, I see on a freeway, for example, during... Um, well, almost any time of the year, I see uh, old-timers tooling up and down the freeway with motorhomes that are 30 feet long, and they're towing on a uh, boat, or they're towing a, an automobile, and they're going from their summer home to their winter home. And all of a sudden, these people will find themselves without any way of 
paying a food bill, uh, let alone keeping up the payments on the motorhome and these other things. And their illusion of value will be destroyed at a time when they can't possibly replace it. And these are the people who are going to be hurt most. They're also very politically powerful people. And if I were to say something to them, I'd, I'd think it would be this. Let it go. Let it happen. Um, I read a book some time ago that talked about the same situation uh, in terms of war. And the point that, that the author made was that the producers have to have something in return for their work or they won't produce. And when this great illusion is destroyed, then the producers, the young people we depend upon, they have to get the major cut of the pie or they're not going to produce. Now, in World War II, in the cities in Germany that were heavily bombed, uh, the older people that were unable to scrounge and, 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 and support themselves died. And a whole generation just disappeared in the cities in Germany. Because when it comes to uh, survival, the producers will survive, but the people who can't produce, if they persist in trying to assert their, quote, rights at that point to an illusion that's suddenly destroyed, they'll find themselves with nothing. So I think the thing to do in any kind of an adjustment like this where we come back to reality is just let it happen and accept what happens and, and try to make your contribution and not try to assert some irrational promise that was made at a time when the world was kind of drunk with some kind of an illusion. Well, I remember the Depression of the 30s, and that was the general reaction then. Everyone made do. Uh, there was relatively little public demonstrations or violence. There were some few incidents in the Midwest, I recall, where farmers chased the sheriff bailiffs off the property and wouldn't allow them to auction it off. A few such bailiffs, I think, were lynched here and there. And at one point, I remember the newsreel where the farmers were dumping milk on the highway and things like that. But generally speaking, most of the agitation was in the cities, and most of the agitation then came from the intellectuals, who incidentally were not suffering much themselves, and most of it was inspired by the communists, the social democrats, uh, various and sundry other utopians, Marxists, etc. This time, however, I think we have a different situation. We have large groups of people who have been continually agitated into the idea that the life and the world owes them not only a, a living, it used to be a living, for their grandparents, it now owes them the results of a living. And I wonder how the United States today, with this idea of this, the government is God, as Rush tells us, when the God fails to provide all the goodies that the God has provided, what will happen? Well, I, the significant difference is that um, back in the 30s, people still believed that there were such things as acts of God and acts of nature. And an economic adjustment to a large number of people, they'd seen them before and they could accept it. 
since the 30s, we've been filled with this idea that government can run the economy and make it perform and give to us the things that are our rightful due. Now, if all of a sudden it can't perform, even through an act of nature, people won't accept that. And they'll say, who screwed it up? You know, who got my share? And they'll go to the government to try to pound their share out of somebody else. And there's an awful lot of jealousy and envy that's going, it's coming up now. And it could lead to some very rash acts on the part of government. It could lead to some very, uh, well, it could lead to a revolution. Well, in Germany, it led to Hitler. Yes, it could. In this country, it looks like it's going to lead to, to a continuation or acceleration of the hyperinflation that we're already into. One of the other differences between now and the 1920s is the fact that we're not in the gold standard. And uh, government has the unlimited ability through the banking system and through direct printing of currency. They've hired these five high-speed printing presses from, ironically, Auto Germany uh, to be in place by 1985. And uh, James Grant, when he was writing the uh, current yield section in Barron's, calculated that it would only take them nine weeks at uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all five operating to pay off the then current national debt. So we may be facing not only a massive credit inflation through the provisions of the Monetary Control Act as a response to what you all have been talking about, the uh, inability, the coming inability of the government to pay off on the promises that it's made and to buy off the protest and rebellion and, and potential revolution they will create money out of thin air to pay. As a matter of fact, uh, Senator Proxmire, the Democrat uh, from uh, Wisconsin, has been quoted as saying, what do you mean we're not going to pay Social Security? Of course we'll pay Social Security. The money we pay off in might not be worth anything, but we'll pay. Well, I'm sure the politicians will take the e- what looks like the easiest way out. We'll try to buy time no matter how. If there is a a collapsing real estate market uh, in political terms, more immediate terms, I imagine it would uh, impact on the present administration first. Uh, Yes, there's no doubt but what the um, incumbent administration has to have a going economy and a good market in order to get reelected. And if these adjustments come before the election, why then um, Reagan will be a one-term president. Just to look at what the politicians have done to themselves. They have guaranteed summer weather forever for everybody. And there's no way that they can possibly meet that promise. Right. Yes, uh, I like your analogy of summer weather for everybody all the time because... Uh, in the last easy chair, I did uh, express one of my pet peeves, weathermen. <laughs> Total humanists. All they ever talk about is how good the weather should be. They never realize that you need rain, you need snow to keep life going on this planet. Well, uh, it's horrifying to listen to Hart and Mondale because they're uh, promising perpetual prosperity and sunshine for everybody if they're elected. 
and the Republicans aren't very far behind in their promises. So people are being uh, fed impossible promises, and hence both parties are uh, ensuring disaster for themselves. Well, this is a, uh, an attitude toward life, which you put your finger on. Hard times, as I look back on it, probably were almost gifts of, of God because they forced me on various occasions and various ways to pull up my socks and improve my ways, uh, sometimes to change what I was doing and so forth. But that whole perception has been denied by the modern school mm -hmm. and perpetuated by the government, which has lost sight of essential honesties. Now, here you have a population, I, I remember talking to a young man just yesterday about some period of history, and he got very angry with uh, his school because they had never told him anything about it. He said, I'm just now beginning to realize that I've been cheated. I think the people are going to feel that they've been cheated because they've been told that the government can manage the economy and can guarantee them against the tribulations of life. This uh, myth is being uh, perpetrated in particular by the people who are managing the international debt crisis. We were <laughs> talking about Argentina, and David, you mentioned uh, Brazil. I had occasion when I was uh, Director of Hearings and Appeals in Interior to attend a uh, luncheon at the National Lawyers Club, uh, which was made up of the general counsels of most of the federal agencies and departments. The speaker that day was a very bright young man who happens to be the deputy to the Treasury Secretary, Donald Reagan. His name is R.T. McNamara. And uh, his talk basically uh, had two thrusts. Number one, that there wasn't any problem with the uh, international banking situation. However, they were managing it very well. <laughs> and uh, he had just come back from Mexico where almost single-handedly, at, le at least as the point man for the Reagan administration, had uh, kept the ball of wax, which uh, we've talked about before, together. Um, afterwards, uh, well, d right after his speech, he asked for questions, and I read him a piece from a... Uh, a uh, insert in the congressional record that Ron Paul had made, uh, quoting a number of authorities, and uh, that really didn't go over too well. It went over like a lead balloon. Uh, afterwards, I had a chance to talk to McNamara directly, and I said to him, instead of continuing to try to cover up, why not meet the issue head on? Why not, and I meant this only semi-facetiously, have Donald Reagan, the, Reagan, the uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, call a press conference for 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the Treasury Building and announce that the United States government hereby repudiates all of its debt, loan guarantee obligations, and pension fund liabilities, get it over with, and start on a new base. Because, as you've mentioned, Otto, or we're getting at, I think, history shows that when you face up to the truth and you face up to the realities and are willing to take on the hard task of reconstruction, uh, rather than continuing to pretend that things are all right, uh, the consequences are always better. And I even offered to 
provide him with a bibliography of uh, books and papers that uh, made this point uh, as an historical fact. You know what his answer was? Absolute disinterest and a blank stare. Uh, this this man was hired to do one thing, and that's to maintain the pretense. Well, of course, repudiation would only give them freedom to begin all over again. <laughs> and uh, we will have repudiation. We are in the process of some form of repudiation, direct or indirect. And I think we'll probably see that repudiation before the end of this decade. What would you say about that? Oh, yes. I, I don't see us going past the 88 elections without a total disaster somewhere. And that's the time frame I'm looking at. I, I think we'll be able to hold it together probably until 87 or 88. And um, if we do, then the process of holding it together will give us a good stock market, probably a good bond market. Um, and it would be a good time to make some money there. But by 87 or 88, I began converting the paper then to real wealth in terms of real estate, gold, um, commodities, things of that sort. The, uh, but on the subject of real estate, um, I think you have to ask yourself, first of all, how do you view the real estate that you own? Is it your home? Is it the place you're going to live in, the place you brought your children up in, the place you'd like to will to your children? If that's the case, then don't look at it in terms of what it's worth and get it all paid off. If it's an investment, then treat it like any other investment. When your yield, when you can get a better yield somewhere else, sell it and convert to to wherever you can get the better yield. Right. Um, about the uh, the reaction to a, an economic dislocation of a major uh, nature, I think you'll see two kinds of reaction from two different kinds of people. There will be people who will want to hold on to their illusions, and there's an old psychiatric saying that you always try to kill your snakes in your neighbor's front yard. <laughs> you project your desires or your sickness onto your neighbor, and then you go over there and try to kill him. It's, it's like... Um, casting your sins on the swine and then killing the swine it's alright if it's a pig but it's a little tough on your neighbor if it happens to be him there will be people who will insist on continuing this illusion that they're wealthy and that they're taken care of and they will insist that government then step in and kill these snakes even if that's a sacrifice of their neighbors other people though I think will be Shaken back to reality, and uh, this I think will be will take the form of a religious reawakening and an understanding that it was an illusion. The government wasn't all that powerful, and we were all on a train that somebody else was driving. And the politicians would be sitting in the caboose saying that we're running the train, say. And every time it would take a turn, they'd say that's the turn we wanted it to make. But uh, it kind of reminds me of. Roosevelt in the um, mid-30s was bragging, uh, he and his brain trust were bragging about how great uh, their control of the economy was. Look look at the recovery we've brought here through our manipulation of the money supply and so forth. Aren't we great? 
Then along came the 1938 depression, which is the only depression within a depression we've ever had. And everybody said, hey, you know, if you're so great, how did this happen? Well, don't talk to me about that, you know. <laughs> it was nicely covered over. Oh, yeah. They didn't want to talk about that Well, that was a classic example of the power of a people to delude themselves. Because with the stock market crash in 1929, the unemployment was a million and a half. It wasn't a bad situation. With a Smoot-Hawley tariff bill, protectionist, let's buy American, and so on, it went to three million. After a few years of Roosevelt, it went to 16 million. And yet the people were sure Roosevelt was curing the situation. It was very, very unhealthy those days to criticize Roosevelt. Oh, yeah. I remember that. And I also remember that it was a weird thing, a myth that floated around, and that was that the businessmen were responsible for the collapse of their own enterprises. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, though bankers and stockbrokers and everyone else who was in business suddenly got was in a bad standing. Well, now this time... I think the odium will fall on the politicians. And I think, therefore, if people lose faith in politics, the, your assumption that there will be a greater religious revival is probably accurate. I to, hope, because the alternative is not. Well, the alternative is chaos. Uh, and people yeah. must believe in something. Yeah. I think the signs are already there of that taking place. You know, there are people that are pretty heavy in hard times already. This yes. recovery has been very selective, and uh, there's an estimated two million homeless, rootless people floating around. They don't even have a place to lay their heads at night, and there are 30, 40, 50,000 of them in all the major cities, you know. Mm -hmm. They see them floating up and down the freeways. These are the disenfranchised, and, and these are the Americans that have dropped off the bottom rung of the ladder. So there are people in hard times already. Isn't it, isn't it ironic that they are floating around in the middle of the welfare state and the welfare state isn't taking care of them? Well, it's a condemnation of the welfare state. It says that uh, it's an illusion that it can't take care of them, um, that uh, they, they become potential clients for, um, what's the term, demagogue? Yes. Or, if the churches can get to them in time, with a uh, with a sensitive uh, statement, and then I think we can uh, <coughs> recoup uh, recover them uh, for Christ. Uh, There's a sort of a struggle underway. Doug Kelly called not too long ago and told somebody, I believe, that during the typhoon, the uh, yes, he crisis, called me about that. Well, that was very interesting. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, I did uh, refer to it in the last uh, easy chair. I see. Namely, that during the uh, tornadoes which struck the Carolinas, one particular church went to a community with food immediately, 200 fried chickens and a lot more food. And, of course, the... Uh, Red Cross, the state and federal officials were there. They were going to control the thing. And they took the food away from the church women and uh, tossed it into trash cans. It was not government inspected. Now, this is the kind of thing that's taking place. That's a dramatic example. 
but all over the country, efforts by Christians to meet human need are running into the roadblock of statist intervention and interference. This is only going to increase, but I think the resistance to it is going to increase also. I do not believe the state has the answer to the situation. More than one uh, person in this area of expertise has pointed out that if uh, welfare recipients were paid directly, they would get $45,000. But it goes through so many hands, they wind up with very little. This is where Christian activities shine. A lot of people with dedication are working to deliver the goods to the people. And churches, black and white, are beginning to expand their ministries in this area. So some remarkable things are taking place from coast to coast. One of the great great advantages the churches have is that they're based, if they're sound Christians, on the truth in Jesus Christ. And so the love that they show is true love, soundly based, and even the recipient recognizes that. And the provisions come from hard, decent work. We're told that in Paul's epistles, that that's where it should come from. I think it's Ephesians 4. And uh, in contrast, the state can only give from what it takes by force from others. So even the recipient recognizes that he is receiving, in effect, stolen goods. And that's why I think some welfare recipients are not grateful over the handout because they have really the decency to recognize where it comes from. So in that very important respect, uh, the churches and, you know, sound Christians, because of the source of the wherewithal and because of the reason for which they are doing the charity based on true love rather than coerced love or forced love, have a tremendous opportunity. Now, that reminds me of Marshall McLuhan's remark about an election is an advanced sale of stolen property. Your comment about um, government actually getting in the way of um, of a uh, charitable act reminds me, I can't remember the his exact statement, but uh, Christ was being upbraided for healing somebody on the Sabbath, and he said something to the effect that laws were created for man. Man wasn't created for the laws. And we, in these periods of illusion, we seem to lose sight of of, of um, our priorities. And um, some people who embrace the law use it, I think not so much in an honest misunderstanding, but they use it because they're vindictive, mean people. <laughs> and they... It just struck me one day that uh, I don't want to affront anybody, but some people become policemen because they like the beat heads and give tickets. Right. I think that's true. And I think when we talk about the welfare state, we should recognize that most of the people that receive welfare are those who administer it. And <laughs> that's very really well said. And, well. and if the welfare state collapses, we're going to have on our hands millions of drones right. who have no skills beyond pushing other people around. Exactly. This is one of the things that happened in the collapse of the um, 
Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, Austria was inundated by all these bureaucrats that had been working in other countries for generations. And all of a sudden, here came these bureaucrats, and they couldn't plant anything. They, and Austria has never been a power since then. Totally destroyed by this inundation <laughs> of, of repatriated bureaucrats. For and, years, uh, for years I've said that the, uh, the world seemed to be vi- divided into various groups of people, two of which are those who like to tell other people what to do and those who don't. And the bureaucrats, of course, fall into the former category. Well, the sad fact is that one country did not liquidate its bureaucracy, the Soviet Union. It used them, expanded them, and has made them the basis of its power. The Soviet Union is the most bureaucratized country in the world. Its power rests on a tremendous bureaucracy. Well, if we were to follow that analogy, the bureaucracy here as we know, is liberal left. Now, at a recent meeting of the Philadelphia Society, Arnold Beichman, author of Nine Lies Against America, Yes, very good book. was talking about the fact that he had been receiving mail from a great many graduate students who are getting C-minus grades from Marxist professors if they submit papers that are not pro-Marxist. And I don't think anyone has ever estimated the number of Marxist professors we have, but they number in the tens of thousands. When we add those to the left liberal bureaucrats, what we have in process under our feet and around us is a shadow government in formation. And it was that crew, social workers and school teachers and bureaucrats that Hitler most effectively appealed to and that Lenin and company most effectively organized. I remember in undergraduate school taking uh, courses in in intercultural sociology and also area studies in the Middle East and the Far East. And one of the things that we studied in looking at undeveloped uh, countries or underdeveloped countries, LDCs they call them now, is the fact that uh, the sons and daughters of the well-to-do had nothing to do. And so they were sent to universities in the United States, and when they came back, they were given jobs in the government because they couldn't do anything useful. And uh, we used to sort of laugh at that because it was happening overseas, and I think that uh, Otto's comment is right on target that it's happening right here in the United States under our feet. In that respect, we are an underdeveloped or LDC, underdeveloped country in LDC. In terms of creating skills for our young people and also for our college crowd and so forth, I would say we're doing a very strange job. Well, it used to be, as I understand it, 40 or 50 years ago, that uh, no more than approximately 4% of the senior high school class went on to college uh, because of the needs of the educational bureaucracy uh, I understand upwards of 50% now at least attend in the first year. Uh, that's a, a massive misallocation of manpower uh, because I can't believe that uh, that many people uh, should go to college, that that should be the course that they should pursue to learn some way to be uh, helpful uh, and productive in life. Well, this is reflected in our military. We have more generals now we had in World War II. Yes. Well, to throw in something that uh, gives uh, a better look to the future, 
We've had a lot of trouble on the farm in recent years precisely because since 1975 the weather has been so unstable and is likely to continue and this has created major dislocations for farmers, losses of crops, sometimes three, four years in a row and people have lost their farms. However, we have perhaps the highest percentage of farmers whose farms are paid off now than we have ever had. So we're developing out of all this fallout a nucleus on the farm that is stable and is better able to ride out disaster than ever before. That's a very healthy fact because uh, usually your economic uh, catastrophes are prefigured by a collapse on the farm front. And the farming community is stronger now than it has ever been before. There's some interesting analogies uh, to the investment markets and the financial markets out of that Russia. During the period 1966 to 1980, roughly, uh, something like one-third of the stockbrokers left the business. And uh, during that period of uh, markets which were very unstable, uh, the stock uh, that was available for trading tended to accumulate in the hands of what we call strong holders, people who were going to hold it for a long period of time are not going to be easily shaken out of their positions. So that anyone who wants to come along afterwards and purchase, say, American Telephone, General Motors, whatever, will have to bid the price up to get it. And that's why it's interesting that you've commented, David, and others now have seen it coming up more and more in the last uh, several months that uh, the analogy is being made to the 1920s when we had that tremendous stock market boom. One other thing that we were talking about earlier was the uh, process by which the disintegration uh, would take place, hopefully not leading to revolution, but perhaps. And uh, many have been talking about an outright, almost overnight collapse. You suggested the possibility that the process could take actually many decades, although there would be many crashes that would look like the real thing along the way. And then you were talking earlier about how capital can be destroyed slowly and about the arrogance of certain uh, persons uh, in the over-60 category who have the two homes and the trailer that they drive in between. Uh, Having come from Florida, I saw a lot of that. And uh, what I also saw was the destruction, as you were talking about, of paper assets. These people uh, felt that if they put their money in uh, treasury uh, obligations, either T-bills or treasury bonds, or they put their money in municipal bonds, that they were entitled to be protected against any threat uh, to those securities or to those investments. The reality is that the inflationary, or I would rather say currency destruction policy of the U.S. government has reduced the purchasing power of uh, these investments so that even though these people have the illusion of being wealthy, in fact, on an incremental day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, their capital is being absolutely destroyed. There's no question about it. And really, in in philosophical terms, I think what we can say is that uh, we're coming to the end of our materialistic era, and 
like all pendulums in in the human world, um, this spiritual and materialistic pendulum swings too far in either direction, too. A friend of mine said once, and I thought it was profound, that uh, human beings tend to extrapolate to the ridiculous. So now we've extrapolated to the ridiculous on a materialistic world. What will have to happen is that we have to come back to our senses, and the swing then will go to the spiritual side. And uh, this swing takes maybe a thousand years for the full period from one to the other. We're coming to the end of a thousand-year materialistic swing, and we'll head back in the other direction. It's really sad, though, when the swing begins to take place. People find out sometimes in a really hard way who they think they are. In a materialistic world, we tend to identify ourselves with our possessions, and to lose a possession is to lose a piece of ourselves. And a friend of mine is an attorney in uh, Tampa, Florida, and uh, works with a lot of retired people down there. And he told me that his concurrent indicator on inflation is the suicide rate at the um, retirement community there that he services. And whenever the inflation went up another notch, people would begin shooting themselves or taking gas or whatever because they saw their standard of living going down and they couldn't face it. Turns out that a uh, destruction of the bond market or a stock market collapse will have the same effect. The people going out the window in the 20s, they're in 29 to 32, were people who had their identities tied up solely in their assets. And when their assets disappeared, they disappeared, and all they did was throw the empty shell out the window. We'll see more of that as this adjustment takes place. On the other hand, uh, there will be people that perhaps are more sensitive to, just more sensitive to religious things and are able to come to their senses and understand where their real being is. And uh, then we'll begin nurturing and and uh, growing the spiritual values then that will see us into the next era. I had no idea that this uh, discussion today would ha- end up having anything to do with abortion. But recently I saw a NOVA program about the China one-child policy. And apparently uh, the way that the people in China are being sold on the idea of limiting their family to one child is that they are an appeal is made to them on the basis of materialism, that if there are fewer mouths to feed, that uh, all will have more. And uh, what that has led to is the justification of even seven and eight and nine month abortions. It's led to infanticide, especially the destruction of a uh, an infant girl. Because if you can only have one, then uh, and you'd rather have a son, then you have to get rid of the girl so that they'll give you a piece of paper that allows you to try again. And uh, what you were saying about these elderly committing suicide because they foresaw a lessened uh, materialistic uh, uh, world for themselves, I think almost fits in perfectly with that uh, experience in China right now. That's the People's Republic of Red China that I'm talking about. That's the signs of a dying era. And in some respects, I sometimes feel like a citizen of the old Rome in its decline. 
But what uh, is underway here, as well as was underway there, is a revived Christian community. And probably nothing else would revive it so much as the decline of all these icons and false gods and illusions. Total discrediting of the state is what has to happen. And it's taking place now. Right. it, I, I was very depressed as I began digging into this economic um, situation and finding historical parallels and all said the end, the end, the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, somebody said, well, you find what you look for. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't like the scenario of the end, then go looking for a beginning. And by golly, there are beginnings out there. Yes. And, and it's just thrilling to be associated with them, you know. There is a line in uh, the poet William Blake who, despite some Gnostic ideas and all, sometimes came up with profound insights. At one point in one of his poems, he wrote, and I quote, I saw the finger of God go forth, giving a body to falsehood that it might be cast off forever. Unquote. Mm. Now, To me, that's superb. And this is what's happening now. The uh, false god of statism is being given a body in the providence of God so that people might see the enormity of their hope, the evil that is embodied there, so that it might be cast off forever. So, I feel, yes, we're in the dying days of Rome, Otto, but I think we're the young Christians who are going to take (laughs) over and remake the world and, by the grace of God, see some marvelous things come forth. Amen. They're happening already. Yes. And they happen in in each person, and um, each one that goes looking has the opportunity to find that in himself. Yes. Well, this has been a most rewarding uh, discussion. And uh, I think we do need to recognize the hope is there, the future is ours, because we're living in a world that is committing suicide. All around us, we see the old world of humanistic statism following a suicidal course. There's an old saying in both Christian and pagan forms, whom the gods or God would destroy, they first make mad. Well, if you want to see that madness, listen to the evening news and listen to what (laughs) the politicians are telling us, and the candidates especially, Hart and Mondale, uh, have promised everything except... uh, Twelve months of spring and uh, a reversal of aging processes, but maybe they'll get around to it because they're going to run out of promises. Never. 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 (laughs) Otto's the guardian of the uh, promises bag. They will never run out of promises. Well, they're going to repeat themselves before long because I don't know what else they can promise. A car in every garage and two chickens in every pot. Yes. (laughs) I think the thing to to keep uppermost in mind is that we're not destroying anything real. We're destroying the illusions. 
And uh, while we would like to think that we're very wealthy, we have to come to the reality that we're not. And once we come to the reality and that understanding, then there's a lot we can still do with that. Because even with 20% of what we think we really have, we've got a lot more than we had 40 or 50 years ago. We've got a lot more than anybody else in the world has. David, you and I yesterday were talking about how uh, we've made uh, mistakes uh, as well as successes in the investment markets and how we felt after... uh, Please, now, we're on tape. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is over. And how uh, you feel pretty bad, very, very low, from a very high to a very low when the markets move against you. And it seems as though the, the world is over, that the, you know, at least as far as you're concerned. <clears throat> but as I went through this process back in the, in uh, the 70s, trading for my own account, I found that, uh, that after I went home and had dinner and went to sleep, I got up the next morning, the sun had risen, my apartment was still there, Seattle, was still there, Mount Rainier was still there, and uh, the world was just going on. And the fact that uh, Stafford had lost a couple of thousand dollars in a uh, stock trade the day before really didn't have too much effect on the world. So I think as uh, this whole discussion has uh, pointed in this direction, if we uh, get back to basic values, sound values, the family and personal relationship and communities, uh, that this is where it's really at, as they say in the current vernacular. Well, one of the exciting things that uh, Big John, John Saunders Quaid, who's uh, on film location right now and can't be with us, has discussed with some of us is this. He's in touch with a number of men, inventors. And the exciting thing is there is a tremendous new technology and process of development. And the key figures in this new technology are Christians, Christian inventors. So we're going to take the leadership away in one area after another, simply because we have a bankrupt faith and you have the reign of the dunces in the other camp. I shall never forget how some years ago at a major university, One of the professors uh, angrily and with disgust commented that there were not, among the many, many, many thousands on campus, 15 first-rate minds. Most of the rest were into the uh, drug culture, the sex revolution, and anything and everything except thinking. Well, we have the minds on our side now. During the 50s, when I was speaking on campus, it was painful. Those who called themselves Christians were the dimwits, the leftovers, who did not want to think, who had no business on campus, and were painful to be around because they were so deliberate and determined not to face up to what the world was. They wanted to run away into their little pietistic devotions. Now, if you go to any campus, in most instances, the most intelligent students are Christians. We are capturing the leadership. So the future is ours. Well, David, it's been good to have you with us. Is there a last word you want to say for this particular taping session? 
I can't think of anything. It seems like we just had to, uh, we had to try a lot of things before we finally decided, uh, as I did some time ago, that uh, I just can't live this life by myself. I'm going to have to have some help from God. And uh, uh, we've been through some rather traumatic periods and tried everything, and the results have pointed to the fact that we just can't live this life by ourselves. And a lot of people are coming to that understanding now, and with that understanding, I think we'll come a whole new era. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you, David, and thank all. I want to thank all of you who are listening. God bless you and keep you. We'll be with you again in two weeks.